Hey folks, welcome back to the IntelliGame podcast. I'm your host, Josh Boykin, the founder of IntelliGame.us, a home for game criticism, culture, and community. I am really glad to bring the podcast back. It's been far too long, and though IntelliGame's roots are very much in print content, um, or in text, in the written word, I think that there's a lot of value in audio. And so, after after a bit of a reprieve, we're back. Now, you might be catching this uh, for the first time on this particular RSS feed, and if that's the case, uh, then I hope that you will stick around for Monday, Wednesday, and Friday episodes of IntelliGame Radio, a uh, sort of short-form mini-show that we run. But every other week uh, will also be an episode of the IntelliGame Podcast, which is a longer-form show and is one of my favorite parts of IntelliGame. The IntelliGame Podcast gives us an opportunity to dig a little deeper into our audio content. Instead of doing quick, short-form stories, we do interviews, we do long-form reads of essays that were published on the site. It also features game recommendations, so that while you're in the process of learning something new, perhaps you can play something new too. Each episode of the IntelliGame podcast centers around a theme, and this episode's theme is power. Power isn't an unfamiliar dynamic or discussion in the gaming space, and it's not an unfamiliar discussion or dynamic in reality either. Power represents this ability to influence, to change, to, well, we'll talk a little bit more about what power means in our interview. But I felt that power was important to talk about this week for a number of reasons. And unfortunately, some of them are in no small part due to ridiculousness in the news. Power in games is generally tangible. It's conveyed through an item, through a power-up. It might be measured in terms of stats or conveyed as a special bonus skill. We inherently know the situations in which we have power, and we recognize the situations in which we need more power. You can, in an RPG, walk into an area where the monsters are higher level than you, and you know that you have to raise your skill to be able to take on that area. I think in many ways, reality mirrors that. We have a sense when we're being outclassed. We have a sense when we don't carry the power necessary to make the influence or changes that we want. And there are ways in which we can gain more power, where we can train, we can study, we can learn. But I think that there are increasingly more discussions in media about what power is, about what happens when people gain power and don't use it responsibly. And frankly, what happens when power goes completely wrong? So today on the IntelliGame podcast, we're going to have discussions about power. We're going to start with an interview with IntelliGame moderator Unseen Academical, a personal friend of mine who has been around IntelliGame 
for quite some time, and also has a really sharp mind when it comes to politics and philosophy and games. Our director's cut, our sort of walkthrough in Intelligame article, is going to be a flashback to the end of 2016, where I wrote an article about Nikki Case's We Become What We Behold. And by the way, Nikki Case did just recently release a new instructable. You can swing over to ncase.me if you want to check it out. Nikki does fantastic content. Finally, we're going to wrap up with a game recommendation, a game that you should be paying attention to or just generally have a discussion about. And I hope you'll enjoy that. We're going to close out with a game discussion. And in this case, we'll talk about a game that uses the power of love to bring folks together and also save some space bunnies. If you don't know what game I'm talking about right now, you'll find out near the end of the show. So again, thanks for being here for the Intelligame Podcast. Let's go ahead and kick it off. We've had a lot of fairly in-depth discussions here in the Intelligame universe. And I think particularly when we discuss structures of power, concepts of power, um, and the ways that society influences us and the ways that we build these dynamics into our games. Uh, one of the folks that I've really loved having discussions with in this regard in particular is Unseen Academical. If you've been part of the Intelligame community for a while, um, you've seen him in our Twitch chats, in the Discord as our moderator, or one of our moderators, and have also seen him on some of the discussions that we've had for Intelligame Game Club. Um, thank you for joining me here on the podcast today. Do you want to start by telling folks a little bit about how you got involved with sort of taking on games not just as a um, not just as a pastime, but a passion? Sure. Yep. <laughs> hmm.
Sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that uh, that sounds like a fair assessment of uh, involvement with Intelligame. Uh, I I think it's it's been fascinating. I mean, since since I've known you, we've always been connected to sort of um, not just playing games, but designing games, and having you know we've had a number of in depth discussions about the dynamics and the interactions that you're creating when you create a game, right? The ways that you want to encourage a certain type of player behavior or discourage certain interactions or feelings, um, they're inherently baked into the ways that you're designing the system of the game. And I think that they very much translate to this idea of where you're placing the power in, in a particular interaction. Right. Uh, uh, Frostpunk. Yep. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and this ties a little bit back to an article that uh, I wrote up on Intelligame a while ago um, that was about going through a game design workshop at GDC. Um, and we were supposed to essentially take a mainstream game, uh, take a particular feeling or aspect of that game, and then create um, create a way to play that game using just uh, pencil, paper, and dice. And so um, it ties back to what I believe Robin Haneke and a couple other folks uh, had termed the, the MDA framework, uh, Mechanics Design Aesthetics. And so um, you have a particular... Uh, your mechanics allow you to shape the design of your game, um, which ties into an aesthetic experience that you are creating for the player. And so um, they kind of created this this same concept where you start with an aesthetic. You start with a particular feeling or experience that you want to convey to your player, and then you say, well, how am I going to do that? So it seems to tie really into what you were just talking about. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. There's a lot to that idea that we are increasingly understanding. I mean, as as media creators from, I don't know, from cave drawings, right? The, the idea of creating media is to essentially implant an idea to generally tell a story or to somehow influence. Um, and I think that whatever the newer form of media has been at the time, typically folks will look at it as some sort of juvenile interaction 
you know, when novels first came out, they were, uh, you know, looked at as sort of like ladies leisure reading and not, not serious and whatnot. Um, and I think that we are, we're transitioning out of that opinion with games where people are understanding like, wait a second, there are, there are stories, there are characters, there are ideas that we're conveying and people are processing these, these stories and these ideas. So though there are games out there that are created to be fun, um, and, and I think there are, there are, in many cases, um, stronger or more pointed experiences that folks extract from a game that has a message that's with an intent. So I think about uh, This War of Mine, which was uh, by 11-Bit Studios, where you are, um, you are basically playing a, a, a group of people who are trying to survive in a war-torn city. And the gameplay mechanics, even though it's sort of just a basic sim management game, are very much meant to make you feel stressed. And the color scheme is meant to make you feel sort of depressed and helpless. Like, there's a very concerted focus on making sure that the message that's being conveyed um, is conveyed accurately through all of its pieces. Right. Yeah. This uh, reminds me of, I believe it's Akira Thompson who uh, created uh, And Maybe They Won't Kill You, which is a, um, a sort of, a, it's a game where you uh, have a, a sort of GM and you are physically walking in a, in a physical space um, and you're basically progressing on your way to a store to like get a drink and make your way home. But with every dice roll, it controls like how far you go and the interactions that happen while you are on the way to or from there. Um, and it's meant, you know, like you're when you're playing the game, you are supposed to put on a black hoodie and you're supposed to be a black man walking to the store uh, who is likely confronted by the cops um, and watching people. Uh, there's actually a, a video that I clipped of it from 
indicate, I believe, year before last, that I'll uh, link in the uh, in the info for the podcast. Um, but watching people play that game is rough, and even me filming somebody else playing it was very rough because, like you said, there's a there's an inherent participation that comes, um, or there's an inherent attachment that comes with the participation of playing a game that may not be the same as watching a movie or reading a book or listening to music. Not to say that there isn't power in those mediums, but it's a different kind of power. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Right. Sure. Wow. Oh. That I'm really excited to hear about that. I mean, even just based on the discussions we've had in the Intelligame chat. One of the things that I feel like you and I tend to do is talk politics and sort of talk meta. You know, taking these concepts that we've learned in games and applying them to the real world. Um, and I think that particularly when I look at the last... Um, the last few days, one of the one of the things that I've been processing is the way that there's this sort of gamification of power in social media, right? That when you are, and this is something that I've thought about when creating posts for um, my personal accounts as well as Intelligame, that there are certain rules that you have to follow to try and um, make your posts more popular or more retweetable or um, there's certain ways that language is played with, um, but even so, there's only a certain amount of influence that you may be able to have with your posts if you're not attached to somebody who already has power. So I'm wondering if you could, um, I know this is this is kind of on the fly, but could you give me a sense of what you would define as power in sort of the, the modern era? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Can you give me an example? Oh, wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Interesting. Wow.
Sure. Yeah, uh, the watching those the sort of implications of the way that power plays out on a political stage in particular. Um, I think, I mean, and and I do think there's a there's a certain extent of like you know what what do they say war never changes. Um, you know, there are a lot of ways that things feel dramatically different uh, post 2016, post November, 2016. Um, and in way, and in many ways they are. Um, but I think there are a lot of ways in which it is kind of the same game, the same concepts that have been, um, sort of retuned or maybe, you know, have just are now running at current speed using current state technology. Um, and it seems like that carries a, a, a level of influence that is shocking. Right.
so I would, I'd really like to know how you feel like these sort of discussions and concepts of power tie back into the gaming space. You know, there've been a number of discussions about how digital marketplaces haven't really provided solid opportunities for like marginalized stories or for games that wouldn't necessarily be as commercially popular to still be able to get site time. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 Right.
Well, I mean, it, I think there are, um, there are a couple things that jump to mind. One is, you know, sort of the, the massive popularity of non-narrative centric games, right? So if a, um, if a game like God of War or, you know, other narrative centric games come out, they're popular for, <clears throat> a, you know, a targeted amount of time, basically while they're in the new window, right? Um, but eventually those things kind of fall away. And people are are generally gravitating more towards uh, esports, you know, things like Overwatch or PUBG or uh, Rainbow Six, you know, games that are are more about watching sort of interactions inside arenas. Um, and it seems like it's difficult to find those spaces in which you're consistently having critical discussion. Sorry to self plug in telegame.us, but like, <laughs> right? Um, but this also, when you were talking, it did remind me of um, GD Black Bat, who's a part of the Intelligame community and also a mod, um, has been uh, watching Atlanta, Donald Glover's, um, I've heard it described as a comedy sitcom, and it doesn't feel that way this season. I just, just recently caught up. Um, <clears throat> but I think a central theme to his, to his show this season is perhaps how to a certain extent, perhaps power is defined. Um, there's a, a piece that I'm, uh, had been tinkering around with that was basically talking about how video games consistently give us this sort of beautiful lie that every problem is solvable. Because the second you walk into a game, it's given you a solvable problem. Like, if you gain this much experience, if you get these levels, if you solve this puzzle, every problem has a solution. Um, and I feel like this particular season, and maybe Atlanta as a whole, um, but it is very much a piece of marginalized art, right? Coming from um, coming from a number of black artists, many of which, or many of whom are, <clears throat> were just sort of connected to Donald Glover's circles, or they didn't, you know, come up through the traditional Hollywood um, sort of gatekeeping process. Um, it's, you know, talking about this idea of like, maybe life isn't fair. Maybe there are some folks who, regardless of how hard they try, do not, may not be able to get the power that's necessary for them to be successful in the ways that they want to be. Um, and I feel like those kinds of stories, it's hard for me to think of a game that tells that story, particularly in, well, in the AAA space. Um, there are so many indie games out there that are, are I think, starting to increasingly deal with um 
situations of aging and maturity and you know things that don't inherently play into power fantasies but um it's hard to imagine seeing a commercial for those next to uh insert breakfast cereal or whatever on your on tv at six o'clock Sure.
Right. Oh, we could, we could talk like this for quite some time. <laughs> like, um, yeah, I was gonna say, I guess we already have. Um, but yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, I so I to wrap us up. Um, we we've talked a lot about uh, some of the things that have gone wrong, <laughs> and and some of the the things that are frustrating. I would love to hear. Um, typically on the uh, the IG podcast, we ask guests for their Intel game. We ask them for uh, a game that's like if you were going to recommend that somebody play something so that they have a better understanding of games or is a game that was really important to you, um, what would that title be? Now, I think you alluded to one earlier, and I wouldn't be surprised if you loop back on it, um, but what would you consider, um, and it doesn't have to be your defining IntelliGame, there might be something that uh, came out recently that you think is really good that you want people to pay attention to, but what would you consider to be your IntelliGame? Mm-hmm. <laughs> was this a this was a video game was this a, a t- you should well maybe maybe if you talk about it we can we can somebody will Tell us what it was. Okay. Oh, you found it. Right.
Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, well, thank you. That was, that is one I haven't heard of before, but is definitely a, one I want to spend some time with. So. <laughs> well, I'm, I will admit my hope is to attend games for change in New York this year. And I, um, I'm I'm hoping that there will be uh, other what the frack style experiences that will uh, help to uh, help to inform folks. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, that's that's exciting. Or, or I, I think that that legislation and what could happen, um, that'll be worth paying attention to. So, um, as well, I, again, we could we could go on forever. I know we're running out of time here. Um, so I, I thank you for for sticking around and for um, for giving such awesome information. Um, this has been a lot. Uh, this has been very informative, and I've of course enjoyed having this discussion. So. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely have to have a caffeine discussion because uh, we're thinking about doing some doing some IntelliGame caffeine stuff too. So thank you so much for your time, Unseen. This has been uh, this has been a blast, and we will uh, we'll have to talk again soon. Today's director's cut is a flashback to December fifth of twenty sixteen. It's an essay I wrote titled. We become what we behold in media, social or otherwise. I've been thinking about the effects of media on our lives, and we become what we behold makes me think about responsibilities as both a content creator and consumer. 
I've been affixed to social media lately. I open Twitter or Facebook, then get hooked by a political post that I quote-unquote have to research. I wander down a well of conspiracy and vitriol, completely conflicting viewpoints circling around the same data, each side accusing the other of the same crimes, racism, elitism, idiocy, inhumanity. Not once have I come back from one of these quests feeling refreshed, optimistic, or hopeful. A thought crossed my mind this morning while eating my favorite breakfast cereal. Am I taking this action for granted? How much longer do I have to enjoy this before the world falls apart? I think like that while doing all sorts of mundane tasks lately. These feelings likely come from a mixture of sources. My feelings on the election and where it potentially leaves the world are a factor, as well as the aging process that naturally makes many of us more conscious of time and mortality. But increasingly, I think about the role of the media that I'm consuming, the articles I read and the videos I watch and the ideas I spend time thinking about. This isn't a case of the media made me do it, but to ignore its influence would be folly. You know, it's... (laughs) As I go through and read this, it's been a while since I came back to this particular piece, but as I wrote this at the end of 2016, so a year and a half ago, and it's strange that this feels like I could have written it yesterday. With the exception of me not eating my favorite breakfast cereal yesterday, I did eat some breakfast cereal I liked yesterday, but uh, my favorite cereal, Honey Graham O's, is... That's not what I had. That's also the most generic sounding cereal in the world. But trust me, you give it a shot, it's pretty good. A friend of mine shared a link to Nikki Case's We Become What We Behold a couple of weeks back, and I've been struck by the game since playing it. A five minute game, you take pictures of figures ambling around on screen, and those pictures become the base for news headlines. The headlines influence the figures, and then you take new pictures. Conceptually, the cycle is simple, but we struggle with its implications in reality every day. As the game eventually points out, the consequences of this cycle can be deadly. They already have been. And I don't think that this is... I don't think this is a a far cry from reality. When we look at even the recent terrorist attack in Canada where the incel uh, person who, a man who apparently felt like he was not receiving the sex that he was due, ended up driving a car through a big group of people. And we've seen the number of ways since. I, 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 feel, I feel unfortunately prophetic in reading this, uh, this article and seeing the number of ways in which media patterns have changed in the past year and a half, the ways that voices of white supremacy and racism and other really garbage positions have been amplified and the ways that those seem to be showing up in the world around us. Back to the essay. The narratives you paint as quote-unquote the media start off innocent, casual, lighthearted, 
at this point in the essay, there's a link to a GIF of you taking a picture of one of the figures walking around wearing a hat, and it's captioned, ooh, nice hat. And then the camera zooms out, and you can see a bunch of other figures watching the TV, and they see the caption, ooh, nice hat, and then they put on hats of their own. It's super innocent, right? When you take the first picture of a crazed figure yelling at innocent bystanders, they might feel strange or funny. But in a soundbite-rich, headline-prioritizing world, the stories that come from your pictures are laden with fear and anger. Crazed square attacks. Circle fears squares. Squares snub circles. Then a circle, turned red with anger from seeing the headline, starts lashing out at squares causing squares to get angry and lash out at circles, and thus it begins, or rather, begins to end. Equally of interest is the feedback you receive when you take the quote-unquote wrong pictures. Capturing images of peaceful protest or love brings harsh feedback and won't allow you to progress forward. Most telling is the picture you get when taking a picture of the crazed square is turned peaceful by a happy couple. Peace is boring. Violence goes viral. After trying to take a picture a second time, and every story needs a conflict, so... After a third time, the game responds, give the audience what they want. Every quote-unquote successful picture of a square or a circle yelling incites more neutral parties to become angry, convincing them to wander around and yell as well. The happy couple eventually stages a protest, calling for unity between circles and squares, but taking pictures of them does nothing to push the game forward. The only way to progress is to keep highlighting the anger, to keep giving the audience what they want, until the population is filled with hatred. At that point, all it takes is one match to set the group ablaze. And the consequences are devastating. No matter how many times I play the game, its violent end always shocks me. And it shouldn't. We Become What We Behold sits with me in ways many other games haven't. All content creators, large or small, play a role in shaping the world around us. For many of us, that's precisely why we take on the task but many pander to our basest fears and drives. Fake news, incendiary blogs, Facebook and YouTube commentators with tens of millions of views who tell lies and incite anger. And whether we like it or not, many of them are what some would deem successful. They make money, they find sponsors, but most of all, they retain the attention of the masses. They have power, and they use that power to reinforce a toxic agenda. The stories they tell get played out by the people who consume them. We become what we behold. At this point, I put in a quote by Marshall McLuhan, a Canadian philosopher who is attributed with the quote that inspired uh, the title of the game. We become what we behold. We shape our tools, and then our tools shape us. I tell myself that my compulsion to spend time on Facebook and Twitter keeps me informed, but I wonder how much it instead keeps me afraid, keeps me angry. Amidst all this, 
I wonder what role I've played in all of this. Where a Facebook share or a random tweet has fanned the flames of anger. Or a blog post could have set someone on the wrong path. Case's game proposes no solutions directly, though media's steering power feels as if it could push people to peace as well as war. It's the role of the creator to create quality media, and the role of the consumer to be conscious when consuming media. I know all that's abstract. I don't know how to convince people to care more about their eyes, their souls, their fellow people living on this planet. I don't know how to teach media literacy, how to convince people to look for viewpoints outside of their own, or to fact-check every meme regardless of whether they agree with it or not. By the way, you should fact-check every meme regardless of whether or not you agree with it. I don't know how to get people to spend less time perpetuating the swirl of social media echo chambers. I can talk about all of that here, but I don't know how to actually get people to do it. I can barely get myself to do it. In the meantime, I dread what comes in the wake of the violent riots at the end of We Become What We Behold. Without a serious course correction, I fear we'll find out firsthand. It's been a long time since I read this piece. And it is at the beginning of December in 2016, so this is right in the wake of our most recent presidential election. And that was a dark time for me and for many people close to me. May of 2018, in that regard, in many respects, still is. It's interesting going back to this piece and kind of getting teleported back to the headspace that I was in. There's a really significant part of me that didn't think we would make it to 2018 without civil war, without nuclear war, without something. And I still feel like I carry around this perpetual concern that we're just a step away. And I, I, I hope that this isn't a consequence of, of aging or of paranoia. And I do wonder, as I talked a little bit about on Intelligame Radio this week, to what extent, if I just checked out of some of these spaces, how much better would I feel? And if I felt better, would it be realistic? Like, hearing about Kanye West saying that he and Trump are dragon energy or you know any any of that stuff like I didn't care about Kanye West's opinion before any of that news before any of the memes I appreciate much of the music that he's created though I don't I don't know if I can go back to it after hearing some of that stuff but what effect does that have on my life? I think what is concerning is that though I can take this sort of insular view and say, oh, well, those things might not affect me. Well, that's not the case for everyone. And there are a lot of folks out there who feel inspired by these figures 
who come out and say, frankly, irresponsible things. And when they do, they start shaping some of the dialogue and discourse. It Even going back to this particular piece and reading my use of the word fake news, I just, I got so incredibly frustrated because I feel like that term has shifted since current administration, where it originally was meant to represent these quote-unquote news sources, these websites that were circulating patently false information for the purpose of gathering hits and gaining money to funnel to who knows where. And then all of a sudden this term is hijacked to the you're a representative of the mainstream media and establishment and whatever. And it, this is the, the these are the ways in which we have to deal with this this sort of new world that we're in but perhaps in all of this if i want to do any service to the concept that this essay should stand for that the idea the idea that there can be hope that maybe we can tell stories about things that are positive maybe we can set examples of people getting along of making the world better of understanding each other maybe maybe those are the things that i need to be doing and the spaces in which i need to spend my energy because we're in may of 2018 and it's not all over yet i i spend a lot of time concerned spend a lot of time scared um, and I don't think I have been in the same headspace uh, since since that election, since travel bans and outright lies that are not only said by the president himself, but also by members of his administration and the cabinet. And it's just it it's shocking, right? But in the wake of bad things, good things can happen too. I think about Universal FanCon and the massive disappointment that people had when they found out that this large convention in Baltimore had been canceled a week before the convention was supposed to happen. And then I think about the pop-up conventions like WeComicCon and all of these other organizations that came together to try and support folks who were still coming out to Baltimore because they couldn't get their flights refunded or couldn't cancel their hotel reservations and like yeah there's still a bunch of disappointment and accountability out there to be had but there's a lot of positivity too and those stories are worth talking about perhaps more than the stories of the people who screwed up like we want those folks to be accountable but we also want to set an example so that people know that there's possibility and hope out there but when you get knocked down, you don't have to stay down. And uh, maybe in that case, if we behold more of those images, maybe we can become that too. We've spent a lot of time talking about how various power can be destructive, corrupt, all sorts of dangerous things. 
But I want to close the podcast on a high note, talking about the power of love and friendship and space bunnies. Yeah, it's one of my favorite games, Lovers in a Dangerous Space Time. Now, this is a cooperative multiplayer game where up to four players control a brightly colored spherical spaceship. You're flying around various galaxies, trying to find these space bunnies that have been uh, captured. You're trying to restore love to the galaxy. And the interesting thing about this game is that all four of you are working to pilot the same ship. The ship has multiple roles. Uh, You have a steering mechanism. You have cannons that are on the north, south, west, and east sides. You have a shield that you can move around, and you have a high-powered cannon that you can fire periodically when it recharges. As you get progressively through the game and get to harder levels, you end up having some pretty pretty tense moments where you have to decide who's going to wield what power at which times. A lot of times, at the beginning of the game, when you're either playing with strangers or playing with friends for the first time, this discussion about power doesn't really happen. And instead, everybody either bustles around trying to do exactly the thing at the same time and you run into each other or you don't coordinate properly. Or sometimes people fall into sort of natural power dynamics they're already familiar with. When I played Lovers in a Dangerous Space Time with my family, since they knew I was familiar with the game and I'm already a pretty seasoned gamer, they naturally kind of let me nudge them in certain directions. But that didn't always mean that I was making the right calls. And so as we all became more familiar with the game, it made more sense that we would shift our roles a little bit. I became a little more trusting and let other people drive every so often. And it also gave me a chance to do something that I thought was fun, which was firing the guns and trying some of the other spaces. See, Lovers in a Dangerous Space Time is about sharing power. It's about finding ways that you can all come together and decide on a situation that's agreeable for everybody. I found that the most fun that I've had playing Lovers in a Dangerous Space Time comes from when we're all sharing the power. It feels a little dry for me to just say, we're going to go here, and we're going to do this, and then we're going to go here, and then we're going to do this. If I was going to do that, I could play a single-player game by myself. But the joy of Lovers in a Dangerous Space Time is sharing the power, sometimes letting other people drive, sometimes letting other people shoot, coming to group decisions about what power-ups you're going to take, or whether you want to go and search for the extra bonus level bunnies, or get out of the level as soon as you can. And inevitably, as the game gets harder and the challenges get more intense, sometimes there isn't even time for a discussion about power. It's just everybody going to instinctively what they know to try and get you out of the level before your ship blows up. It's a really hectic game, but it is a lot of fun. The controls are fairly simple, so practically anybody can play it. And it's full of bright colors and fun music. And it's not made to be a game that is super edgy or dark. It's really meant to be a family experience, whether that family is one you're born with or one you've chosen. Either way, 
think the idea of sharing power is perhaps something we could stand to learn more often. Frequently, I feel like I have gone into communities trying to say, well, oh, well, this is what I've learned and this is what you need to do. This happens a lot in projects of advocacy. But it turns out that when you actually have discussions with the people you're trying to help, when you bring them into the decision-making process and you share that power and that accountability, you generally come up with better solutions. And everybody's happier with the process in the meantime. You're actually giving people what they need, not just what you think they want. And those are the kinds of solutions that are sustainable in the long run. So maybe Lovers in a Dangerous Space Time can help you learn how to share the power and share some of that responsibility? If not, that's okay too. It's still just a really fun game. And if you're looking for something to brighten a weekend or bring you together with friends, I hope you give it a shot. That does it for this edition of the IntelliGame podcast. For more IntelliGame content, swing over to IntelliGame.us, or you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook at Let's IntelliGame. You can also follow IntelliGame on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Let's IntelliGame. Thanks again to our special guest, Unseen Academical, who gave us some fantastic discussion. If you're interested in hearing the full conversation, because only part of it could make it into the podcast, keep an eye out on IntelliGame.us for the full extended interview. There's some really exciting news coming down the pike about a new member of the IntelliGame team, and if you're interested in the news, I recommend you keep an eye out for the IntelliGame podcast coming to you in two weeks. In the meantime, keep an ear here for IntelliGame Radio on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and of course keep IntelliGaming. I've been your host, Josh Boykin. You can find me at Twitter or Facebook.com slash Wallstormer, and I hope you have a fantastic night. See you next time.